You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Variation, let us turn now in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. This morning we'll be studying as our text Ephesians 6, which speaks of the armor of God. And it speaks of a battle which is taking place and the work of the evil one. So we read from Matthew 4 to see a glimpse, a picture, one time in Scripture, of how the devil works in the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we read from Matthew 4, the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Let us turn now in our scriptures to Ephesians chapter 6 and realize now we're at the end of the book of Ephesians and the Apostle Paul is laying out some of the practical applications and implications of what it means of being redeemed in Jesus Christ, of being bought with His blood. What does that mean for us as God's people? And so he goes through chapters 4, 5, and 6 especially, saying what it means for husbands and wives, children and parents, Slaves and masters. And now we come to Ephesians chapter 6. And we read in verse 10 to 17 as our text concerning the armor of God. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, place yourself in this scenario for a moment. Imagine 
that a wicked foreign country invades Canada and they desire to put every citizen to death. So the Canadian government gathers up, they have a draft, yet there's still not enough people in the Canadian military. The enemy is advancing quickly. What can we possibly do? So the government tells us, as citizens, we may have to defend ourselves. So get ready, in your own homes, your own towns, your own cities, to defend yourself. There would be many preparations that would have to be made. Water supplies and food supplies would have to be stored up in our homes. Weapons would have to be readied or even purchased. So that one would be ready for the invading army. And now imagine how foolish it would be if on the day when the invading army comes into our town or our city, we're put to death because we weren't ready. As if we didn't know that the invading army would come. We had fallen asleep. We were taking a nap. We forgot to lock the door. We didn't have weapons at hand. Any of these things. Well, that would be quite foolish. Obviously quite foolish. But matter of fact, this is how many Christians live their life. Many Christians live their life in just this way. We as believers living on earth are called the church militant. That means we're the church that still must fight. If you don't fight, you will be injured or even worse, put to death. How can I say such a thing? After all, isn't God our protector? Yes, of course He is. However, I can say this because the Apostle Paul is essentially alluding to this very fact that we have a great and important responsibility here as people of God. In fact, all throughout the letter of Ephesians, there is an interplay taking place between the sovereignty of God in one hand, Ephesians 1 says He elects us, He foreknows us, He adopts us, He chooses us. These are all things God does, even without our knowing. But on the other hand, we're told that we have to live a certain way because God has done those things. So the sovereignty of God on one hand and human responsibility on the other, these, as we will see, are not opposed to each other. In fact, to be victorious on the day of battle, these two, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of believers, will come together perfectly in a wonderful union to achieve victory. But why now, at the end of the letter, does the Apostle Paul start speaking about warfare? He's giving these directives to master slaves, children, parents, husbands, wives, light and darkness. It's extremely important to see how this letter is unfolding. He began, as I mentioned, pointing to the benefits of Christ and now how that applies to us. He reminds us that God has worked all of salvation for His own glory. Then in the book of Ephesians, he moved on to explain how we as the redeemed people of God are to respond to such a great salvation. And now he says, in light of the fact that we have to walk in light and not in darkness, that we have to stay away from evil, follow God's path, It's as if he takes a moment here and says, hold on a second though. Don't think that it's going to be easy. We've thought too long that the Christian life will be easy. It's not easy. It won't be easy. It will not be easy to live as a Christian in this world. It will not be easy to raise children in a world that tells us the exact opposite of what the Scriptures tell us. It will not be easy. Not only socially, not only in our family, but individually. It will not be easy spiritually. We will have to fight. 
And sometimes we can't even see the enemy we're fighting against. It will not be easy. If you think it will be, then you're sorely mistaken. In fact, the war is taking place. You need to be prepared for it. You must fight in it. All of you. Not just men who will defend their home, but women. Children. As parents, now we view a baptism. And we eagerly anticipate God's blessing to parents as we see this. That God might give them strength to raise this covenant child. But as parents, we must teach our children about this as well. About the force, fierce battle which is raging even in the hearts of God's people. We are fighting against a great and a powerful enemy. In fact, if you were to face this enemy one-on-one, you would be destroyed, devoured. And here's the scariest part. You might not even realize that it's happening. Beloved, this battle is real. Our enemy is powerful. But but God gives us the armor for the war. Our theme this morning is God equips us with the armor we need to win the battle. God equips us with the armor we need to win the battle. First, we'll see the reality of the war. Second, we'll see the power of the enemy. And third, we'll see the armor of victory. So first, the reality of the war. Look at verse 10 of our text. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Begins by telling us to be strong. This can be translated as well to be strengthened by the Lord, to be strong in the Lord. In our text, there's a combination of God preparing us for battle on the one hand and us preparing ourselves for battle on the other. And these two will work together in a complete unity. But before we can prepare for war, we need to know what type of war, what type of battle we're speaking about here. Well, let me ask you this morning. Do you believe in demons? Boys and girls, do you believe in demons? Well, you had better, because they're as real as the nose on your face. There's a spiritual war that is taking place. It is waging. We oftentimes refer to this as the antithesis. We are called to live an antithetical lifestyle, which means we live a life that understands this war. In light of this war, prepared for this war, for this battle. This is how we are called to live as God's people. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, there's the calling to God's people to live this antithetical lifestyle. In fact, all throughout Ephesians, there's this contrast taking place. Ephesians 2, 3-5, to the Apostle Paul shows us that we have gone from death to life. Along the same theme in chapter 4, The Apostle reminds us to stay away from darkness and to walk in the light, the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 25 of chapter 4, he says, Each of you must put off falsehood. Speak truthfully. And in chapter 5, we're told to walk circumspectly. This battle that is being waged is very close to this idea of walking circumspectly. To walk circumspectly means, congregation, that you live with your eyes wide open. You know what's going on. You can see sin approaching on the left and on the right. You continue to walk forward, but yet you understand the reality of temptation and of sin. 
The battle is real and there's no escaping it. Look at verse 12 of our text. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Oh, beloved, how much easier would it be to fight flesh and blood? We can see what we're fighting against. If you fight flesh and blood, the worst thing that can happen is they could kill our body. Who cares? But what we have to fight against, against the rulers of this dark world, against authorities, or as another translation puts it, principalities and powers of this dark age, What a battle this is, that we have to fight against the powers of this age, and this age is strong and powerful. Maybe you would like to view the world through rose-colored glasses, but in reality there is sin and darkness all around us. It's nice to be part of a covenant community. We can shelter in some way our children from the wickedness in the world, but we can't totally. Someday our children will grow up. They'll leave our homes. They'll go off to university or to college or into the world of work. And they'll be confronted with it once again. It comes into our homes over the television, over the radio, movies. We see it all around us. We see it even on our own streets. Read about it in the newspaper. There is wickedness all around. We're confronted with it in the hospital room in the classroom and in the workplace. What this wicked age tells us is so completely opposed to the Word of God. We have to live among this wickedness. Our children have to see it. It creeps into our lives, our homes, even our church and our schools. This is serious. It's serious because it's a matter of life and death. So many live their life with all of their attention on the physical aspects of life and completely disregard the spiritual. Think about how you pray, congregation. What do you spend your time praying about? The physical realities of this world or the spiritual realities of this world? Isn't it about the stuff we need? About health? About sickness? These are all fine to pray for. But we have to realize our calling to pray as well for our spiritual needs. Well, the thing that makes this battle so extremely terrifying is that in war, you can only die once. If you're in the army fighting somewhere and you make one mistake, you step onto the wrong street at the wrong time, and you're shot or killed. It's dead. You're dead. It's over. It's the end of the story for the life of a soldier. It's not like we're playing a video game here where you can just push restart, start over. You can't keep continuing. And so it is in this life. There is always hope in this life. Always hope in this life. For everyone, there is hope in this life. For the person who is excommunicated from the church, there is yet hope in this life. But after this life, there's no turning back. There's no changing of the mind. After death, it is over. For those who are, who do not know the Lord. Beloved, we are at war. With darkness. We see in our second point the power 
of the enemy which we must fight against. We are fighting hosts of wickedness. And the devil's far more intelligent than anyone sitting in this room, sitting in our sanctuary this morning. Satan himself is a fallen angel. He can only be in one place at one time. He is not omnipresent. Satan is not the opposite of God. He is not God's counterpart. He is the opposite or counterpart to Michael or to Gabriel, who are archangels. Verse 11 tells us, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Against the devil's schemes, his wicked scheming, the wiles of the devil. Beware of the evil one, even as we pray to be delivered from evil in the Lord's Prayer. I read recently a story about a fisherman. What essentially the story was saying was there was a fisherman who went to a small pond. And there were other men who were fishing there as well. And this fisherman walks up to the pond. He stands on the edge of the pond. And he just stands there holding his fishing rod and his, his tackle box. And he just stands there. And the other fishermen are fishing away, catching nothing. And they're looking at this guy and they're saying to each other, why is this guy just standing here? Why isn't he fishing? It's actually kind of annoying that he's just standing there without fishing. And then after a certain period of time goes by, the fisherman who is standing on the shore ties a fly to the end of his line, casts in, pulls out a fish. Casts in again, pulls out a fish, casts in again, pulls out a fish. And he keeps doing this until he has enough fish. And all the, all the, in the meantime, the other fisherman had caught nothing. And so that fisherman packs up his stuff to go home. And as he's walking past them, the fishermen who were unsuccessful said, Why were you just standing there the whole time and then when you started fishing? He just kept catching fish after fish. And the successful fisherman responded. He said, well, I know these fish. I know them. I know what they want. I know when they want it. I know exactly how to get them to bite. And so it is with the devil. He knows us. He knows your weakness. He knows all of our weaknesses. He doesn't attack us where we're strong. He attacks us where we are weak, where we are vulnerable, like any intelligent enemy would do in war. He is an intelligent enemy we have. You attack at the weak spots. And so he does in our lives. He knows all of our weaknesses, and you bet that's where he's going to attack us. Sometimes he just dangles the bait before us, slowly lures us away before he devours as Scripture tells us. Now, am I giving Satan too much credit here? After all, he is under the control of God, right? Well, listen to what the Bible says about the great deceiver. If you thought humans can be deceptive and manipulative, they are nothing compared to the devil. The devil is a scheming strategist. He makes us enough truth with the lie to make it appear plausible, like he did with Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, 4, and 5. He misquotes Scripture, as he did in our Scripture reading from Matthew 4, verse 6, in the temptation of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says that he masquerades as an angel of light, and he causes his demons to do likewise, so that they fashion themselves 
as apostles of Christ. The devil convinces people that he does not exist in Acts 20 and verse 22. He enters places he's not expected to enter in Matthew 24:15 and 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4. The scripture is full of these examples. And finally, above everything else, he promises people that good can be attained through wrongdoing. In Luke 4, verse 6 and 7, the devil is ever near to twist the Word of God. Scripture says that he prowls around like a lion waiting to devour. Now, if there was a lion walking through your neighborhood, don't you think you'd be pretty careful before you go outside? Well, of course. Do not underestimate the devil. The devil tries to get into our prayer lives by convincing us that we're too tired to pray tonight. He breaks into our marriages when he tells us that we'll win the argument if we could just yell a little bit louder than our spouse can yell. He affects the way our children are raised. He convinces us and them that, oh, just one date with a non-believer isn't bad. After all, they're not getting married. He convinces the alcoholic that one drink won't lead to drunkenness. He convinces those who are married that a relationship isn't worth fighting for. Reconciliation isn't worth it. Divorce is the easy option. He convinces ministers to listen to the complaints of everyone who says that a sermon shouldn't be over 20 minutes long or that ministers shouldn't preach about sin or that he should never speak critically about other people who confess to be Christians that he has no right to judge anything. He convinces elders to steer clear from difficult situations. He convinces them it's not worth it to approach the young man in the congregation who doesn't think it's important to attend worship week after week. He convinces deacons to live selfishly. He convinces Christians to live for self. And that the spiritual world is just something that's made up. I asked you, do you believe in demons? I did see one little boy shake his head yes. Of course we believe in demons, but really, do we believe in what the Word of God is saying? Or does it kind of seem like church talk to us? Oh yeah, that's, that's the stuff ministers talk about. That's what we hear from the pulpit. But I'm afraid that many Christians don't believe in the reality of this war. They don't believe in the power of the devil and what he can actually do with God's Word by twisting it. Oh, how the devil must smile his grimace of death when a child of God is weak and vulnerable. There are many times in our life where we are weak and vulnerable. If we're honest with ourselves, we could say at all times we're weak and vulnerable. As a minister, and for your pastors as well, There's more than one reason why I should visit those who are ill or those who are in the hospital. It's because the devil lives there. What do I mean? As soon as something happens in our life, sickness, for instance, and we start to question the just nature of our situation in life, when we start to ask questions, now, God, why is this happening? Or, God, where are you at this time? When we start to ask questions, the devil loves to whisper in our ear. 
God in His providence allows the devil to do this. And the devil has the most powerful and modern weapons of warfare. So the question to you is, are you willing to fight? Are you willing to fight? I must warn you that the fight is not easy. The enemy is so extremely powerful. He not only confronts us from the outside through the world, but even in our own hearts and minds. If you are willing to fight in this evil day, then you had better put on the full armor of God, which we see in our third point. Now, congregation, before you put on the armor of God, you might have to take on the take off the armor of man or the armor of self, if that's what you've been trying to use to fight. Verse 11 of our text says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. William Hendrickson says about this, Leave nothing out. You will need every weapon. Do not try to advance against the devil and his host with weapons from your own arsenal. Rather say with David, I cannot go with these, for I have not proved them. The weapons we need are provided by God. So let us look to our text and see what these weapons are. First, is having girded your waist with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We see it in verse 4. The belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place. These two go together because the breastplate, which would have been wore from the shoulders to the waist, is secured on the Roman soldier by the belt. So these two go hand in hand. These are parts of the Roman soldier's uniform. Paul, as he's writing this letter, is likely chained, handcuffed to a Roman soldier. He could be, really, looking at the person sitting next to him, describing the armor that a Roman soldier would make, or would wear. But notice that the description the Apostle Paul gives to us begins with truth. Truth. This truth is a mindset. It's not so much about saying things that are accurate, as we could say that is a true statement. It's about living in truthfulness. We refer to this person as being one of integrity. And this goes closely with the breastplate of righteousness. This is not referring to the righteousness we receive in Jesus Christ. This is referring to our own walking in personal piety. You must walk righteously. Or as even the Belgian Confession says, follow after righteousness. This is referring to our walking morally before God. So the question that comes now is, are you living the type of life that enables you to engage successfully in this conflict? Are you living the type of life with this armor? And then we see in verse 15, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now the question is, are you ready to fight? Don't fight without shoes on. Of course. Feet are very important in battle. Boots or shoes are very important. Shoes were extremely important in battle. That's one thing that made the Romans so so successful. Why? Because the Romans had the best shoes. 
the shoes soldiers would use had spikes built in the middle, in the bottom of them. Almost like cleats we would use for, for soccer or for baseball or football or something like that. There were metal spikes built in the bottom of them which gave them the ability to go quickly over difficult terrain. Therefore giving them the ability to advance faster upon an enemy who was not suspecting them. The Christian soldier has this, which is called the gospel of peace. But why that? Why the gospel of peace? It's to give him comfort. To give the Christian comfort in the day of battle. Because of that gospel, the outlook of the believer is so completely opposed to the look of the non-believer. And the next question we have is are we even able to fight against such a powerful enemy? Well, that's why we're equipped with the shield of faith. The Roman shield, which is being referred to here, was four feet tall, two and a half feet wide. The shield would be kept close to the body, so nothing can come between the shield and the body. It protected, in large part, the most important vital organs of the body. The heart, the stomach, the liver, kidneys, those types of things. The shield was very important. And for a Roman shield, it would be a metal shield with leather on the outside. And this would put out fiery darts or fiery arrows, as our text says. It would also bend the tip of them. The shield protected the body. The shield of faith and the helmet of salvation are extremely important to protect the body and the head. The devil attacks hard. He has all kinds of arrows, or as one translation says, darts, in his arsenal. We're like, what? Well, he can use persecution, anguish, pain, sickness, tribulation, famine. Maybe the loss of your job is an arrow that the devil will shoot. He knows exactly where and how to attack. The devil uses things like this, sickness, to lead to all kinds of sins like doubt or greed, lust or vanity or envy. The helmet likewise, but the helmet is received. Look at verse 17 of our text. Take the helmet of salvation. It means it's given to us. If we take it, it's given. Verse 17 says to take it. So many of these weapons are defensive in nature. They protect our head. They protect our body. However, don't think our calling in this battle, in this world, is to dig a hole and live in it. Or to run to the hills, find a cave, and hide in the cave. Nope. Stand. Our text says multiple times to stand. To stand firm. To stand strong. Our calling is to stand. Stand firm and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That is our weapon of offense. It's the Word of God that we need in this battle, not the Word of man. There's no substitute for it. It's the Bible that it's referring to. Not even the preached Word now. It's referring to this living Word of God in the Holy Scriptures. It will be your guide. Read it. Learn it. Memorize it. Love it. It's your sword. Who's going to run onto the battlefield without a sword? Well, a dead man would. 
learn to love this word. Place it in your hearts. Impress it upon your children, just as we heard from Deuteronomy 6. The Bible must be our guide. The word of God is what Jesus used as a weapon when he was tempted by Satan. Three times, Jesus responded with the word of God. Beloved, you have a choice to make. You can either fight or give up. You could fight or surrender. But just to be clear what we're talking about here, if you surrender, we're not talking about surrendering land or money or title or something like that. We're speaking about spiritual warfare. Not flesh and blood here, but our souls. Our souls are what we are fighting for. That is what we are called to protect. Our souls. Not only do the wicked forfeit their souls, but essentially they change sides, as it were, and they fight for the devil. So will you stand up when God calls you to? Will you stand firm, or will you give in to the schemes of the devil? See, Eve might have just thought that she was going to take a bite from a piece of fruit, and her eyes would be open. She would be like God. But all it took was one deception by the devil. Adam and Eve and the entire human race fell into depravity. They fell into opposition to their Maker. The decisions we make in this life have eternal consequences. Do you think the Apostle Paul here is wasting ink and parchment to exhort the Ephesians to put on the armor of God and to fight? If you think it's a waste of ink, then I have great fear for you and you're sorely mistaken. But before we close, I must give you now the rest of the story, as one commentator puts it. I must finish the rest of the story about this battle. Oftentimes in war there are battles that are turning points in the war. We know this happened in World War II. On D-Day, when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy, France, had many casualties, but essentially won an entrance into the mainland of Europe. And by now, as we look back on the war, or after the war, you can look back and see there, D-Day, that was the turning point. They said you only won a battle in France. There was much more to be conquered. But once that entrance was won, then the Nazi forces could be defeated. They would be pushed back and overpowered. So it works in war. But so it is with us. So it is with us. D-Day has already happened, spiritually speaking. When? Christ did it. Christ struck the death blow by winning the decisive victory over sin, death, and the devil on the cross. The enemy, essentially, is already defeated. Just as the Nazis were essentially defeated after D-Day, all that had to happen after that is battles had to take place. They knew the war would be won. Christ is the victor, and in Him, in Him we have victory. So why do we still need to fight? Because the war isn't over. We know that Christ secured for us the victory, but God enlists us into His army to continue to battle until our Lord Jesus Christ returns. That will essentially be Liberation Day. 
But this, today, is the evil day. And so we must fight. We must fight with all we have. That is, fight with all that God has given to us. And so, beloved, may we follow God, our commanding officer, as we march against the prince of darkness in this evil age. May God give us His grace as we fight. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.